What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today is a Q&A, a classic Q&A where I take all of your questions and I'm going to jam right through them. We have some nutrition ones. We have some lifestyle ones. We have some stress management ones. We have some mindset ones. We have some training ones. We have a lot of good questions from you guys, and I just want to make a quick reminder. No matter where you're listening to this, whether you're on YouTube, you're on Spotify, you're on iTunes, no matter what, The easiest way to get your questions answered, to get your problems solved, and get better results for the specific issues that you're facing with your training and nutrition is to simply shoot me an email. Cody at BoomBoomFormance.com. Hit me up. Put in the subject line that you have a podcast question and literally ask me anything. I will shout you out. I will bring you up on the podcast and I will answer your question as specific as possible so you can walk away with some serious results and some serious answers that are going to help guide you and alleviate some of that stress. That is what this podcast is all about. Speaking of which, this podcast is all about reaching more and more people and getting more and more people better education so they can get better results. And there's a couple ways that you can actually help me do this. Number one, head over to iTunes. Even if you do not listen to me on iTunes, guys, please go over there. Hit the search bar. Type in Boom Boom Performance. Even if you're subscribed, you do need to go through that search process again. Leave us a five-star rating and review. Tell us what you love about the show. We want to hear from you guys. And this is the best way for us to grow the podcast on iTunes, which is a huge part of the success behind this podcast. And again, how we reach more people and help more lives around the world. The second way you can help me is no matter where you're listening to this, take a screenshot of the show right now, post it on your Instagram story, tag myself and leave me something to read so I can hear about you, about what you love about the podcast and what you want me to do more of, whether that's a guest you want me to bring on, more questions for me to answer, whatever you love about the show, let me know so I can get more insight into you, the listener. That is why I do this podcast, guys. So without any further ado, let's jump into this awesome Q&A. All right, so our first four questions, Adriana Frank, you killed it with the questions this week. Um, See, this is a great example, guys. If you want your stuff answered, if you want answers to your problems, if you want to learn more about how you can get better results and you want to stop questioning all the things that you have questions about with training, nutrition, plateaus, whatever it is, I'm a coach. This is what I do. Adriana took advantage of this podcast and I commend her for it. I respect her for it. So this is how, this is a good example for coaches too. Like I remember when I first started, one of the ways I really got answers to my questions and just got my name out there was I was always interacting with other coaches that I looked up to. I was always commenting. I was always sending emails. I was always thanking people for just writing books and giving me more educational tools. I was reaching out to different coaches in the industry with guidance on business, life advice, books, education. Um, I remember asking people about like, should I further my degree? Should I go for another four years? Should I go get this uh, CSES? Should I do all these different things? And asking professionals their honest opinion after being in the industry for 10 plus years. Um, And it's just a good way to get your name out there, guys. So for coaches who want to grow their business, want to grow their knowledge base, want to get more well-known, the best way to do that is to just take action on conversations. Just reach out to people. Some of the people in the fitness industry are dicks. (laughs) I'm not going to lie about that. But 99% of them, I mean, there's always dicks in every industry, let's be honest. But 99% of people in the industry are actually super genuine and super nice, and they're always willing to help out. I, I don't remember a single time of me... I lie. I remember one single time where I've ever reached out to somebody and I felt like they were kind of an asshole. Um, And I was actually trying to publish an article on their site as like a guest blog. So I couldn't even really be mad because it's their site. Like what? I mean, who am I? Right. But 
the point is, is, and this is how I got published on Huffington Post, Bodybuilding.com, and many other websites, uh, IN3, like all these different places that I've been quote-unquote featured. Um, the biggest reason I've been featured there, DrJohnRustin.com, like I can keep going. Um, the reason is because I just ask. I just take action. I just start conversations. I just leave a comment. I friend request people. I start conversations. I jump into conversations. Let the, let it be known. I go to conferences. I go to networking events. I go to seminars. I go to workshops. Even if I don't want to learn or I've already learned this thing before, I repeat topics because I want to network. I want to uh, affiliate myself with people. And I hire coaches all the way through. Shit, I remember hiring. I was writing something the other day. And I talked about this. I, I've hired over 20 coaches to do my training and nutrition personally. And half the reason wasn't because I was like, oh, man, I'm going to do X, Y, Z and get to this result. It was just like, man, I just want this person to know who I am. I just want to network with this person. I just want to connect with this person. I just want to learn from this person and be educated and, and kind of get in their bubble and have that circle of, of influence. Um, and I did that so many fucking times. So um, super, super important, guys. Just ask Adriana. Uh, I commend you. You asked me four questions this week. You sent me an email, and they're great questions, so we're going to dive into them. So the first question is, thoughts on IgG food sensitivity tests? I know an elimination diet is more effective in figuring out food issues when it comes to digestive and skin reactions. However, what about slow body inflammations? I have read mixed reviews on IgG tests, and with the hefty cost, I would love to know your thoughts. Um, I would actually recommend, and this is usually what I recommend. I think I've recommended a food sensitivity test once, um, to a client. Uh, and I actually, that's a lie. I've recommended them plenty of times, but years ago now in, in the last two years, I think I've recommended it once. And I recommended that they go to Cyrex because Cyrex is one of the most well-known and highest quality rated companies that you can do these tests through. Um, some of all, all tests, really. It's a really good company, and I trust them, and they go a little bit more in depth. The problem with IgG food sensitivity tests is that our body creates these food reactions, these IgG food reactions. It's kind of like imagine your body creating en enzymes inside its gut in order to deal with invaders, invaders being antioxidants, being nutrients, being ingredients, being different kinds of foods, being bacteria. There's a lot of things being consumed and uh, injected into our body and our body creates enzymes and different things to try to mitigate that process, to try to handle those things, to try to break them down, digest them, absorb them, so on and so forth. Your body creates IgGs in order to do that. Now, I am not an expert. I am not somebody in the lab. I am not somebody who deals with this stuff. I am not a holistic type of person who is running these tests on individuals, but I have studied quite a bit on these things. I've talked to a lot of people and the greater majority of people I've talked to personally, studies I've read and information I've dug into shows that IgG food sensitivity tests probably aren't that great. The reason for this is mainly because our body creates this reaction in order to deal with the food anyway. So if you have consumed gluten in the last month, let's say, you have created these IgG food sensitivities and then you go do a test and then it pops up. It may not be because you actually have a sensitivity to that food. It may actually be because you've just consumed that food recently. Right? And certain foods create a bigger response, right? Um, usually unpaleolithic 
foods create a bigger response. It does not mean that it's creating an abnormal amount of inflammation in your body and causing havoc and wreaking uh, havoc and, and causing issues that are going to create bloat and gas and IBS and stress and joint pain and, and weight uh, gain and so on and so forth. All it means is that your body is creating these enzymes, these IgGs in order to deal with it. There's nothing wrong with that, um, and it specifically happens with non-paleolithic food. So if you notice, a lot of people do food sensitivity tests, and all of a sudden they come back and they're like, oh, shit, I'm, I have sensitivities to gluten, peanuts, um, grains, whey protein. Like they start naming off all these things like, oh, that's weird. So you have to be paleo. And it seems like everybody who does a food sensitivity test has to be paleo. Now, there's nothing wrong with paleo. And if you want to be paleo and you feel better being paleo and it's for ethical reasons or whatever it may be, great. Do it. I don't give a shit. Everybody should do what makes their body feel best, makes their mind feel best. 80% of my diet is paleo if I'm being completely honest. So I'm, I'm all about it. I, I understand that. But the reality is is if I go take a food sensitivity test, it's going to tell me that these things are bad for me, right? Um, and I just don't think that's the, the truth. I believe that – and there's some studies that show that your body's going to create these IgGs regardless um, if it has true sensitivities or not. It's mainly just a response in your body that happens after the food is being, uh, has been consumed anyway. So most people will probably get this response and it's not because they have a sensitivity. It's probably just because they've consumed that food recently. Now – I'm a much bigger fan of the elimination diet. I'm going to tag a couple uh, things in this the show notes of this video slash podcast because we're filming this podcast. Um, I'm going to leave uh, some links to the blog I just wrote and the infographic I just created on this uh, elimination diet. I think this is the best way to go. It just it, it guarantees that you're going to see this difference, right? Um, I just did this process right when I hurt my knee. I basically went into an elimination diet because. I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to be able to train at all for a little bit after surgery. Um, once I get back to it, it will be all upper body. I'm going to have a lot of inflammation. I'm probably going to have a lot of healing to be done. I might as well go through an elimination diet, right? I can't really chase physique or performance goals. Let's do some health searching. Let's do some inflammation healing. Let's make this recovery a little bit faster, and let's really try to discover if I do have any food sensitivities. Um, none of mine are, are – abnormal to the point where I have extreme bloat, extreme gas, extreme issues with digestion. I'm pretty, I'm fine with just about everything. I would, me and Shannon always joke that I have an iron gut because I can just eat whatever. Uh, but I did this test. I ran this test and, uh, I went through the elimination process. What I noticed is I am much more bloated and gassy when I have, uh, any type of dairy. Actually, surprisingly enough, I thought whey protein would be the one that triggered eczema that triggered all this. Really didn't have an issue with it. Once I brought cottage cheese back in, however, I did have an issue. So some dairy I'm fine with. Um, I can do whey shakes. I can do butter. As soon as I had cottage cheese, it was bad. Um, I, my gut was stressed, so I cut that out. Um, I brought in oats, and I was fine, and I love oats, so I'm not going to completely cut them out. But I, it left me a little bit bloated, and when I cut uh, – like when I don't have those and I just have like white rice or sweet potatoes, I feel a lot better. So – the elimination diet is for anybody who wants to discover if they actually have serious issues or if they just have uh, like subconscious or indirect issues that you're not even realizing because the reality is, is I may not have had IBS or serious stress, but if my body is bloated and gassy and not completely or easily digesting my food, that means I'm not absorbing my nutrients better. That means I'm not going to efficiently utilize the calories I'm taking in for performance or building muscle like I want to. 
it just doesn't make sense. But a lot of people don't even realize it. I had no idea that I was even bloated or gassy until I cut those foods out. And I was like, holy shit, I feel a lot better. I have more energy. This makes sense. Um, I, so I just think the elimination diet is a much more sound approach. It takes a little bit longer. It's more difficult. It takes more creativity with your meals. So it is a challenge. But at the end of the day, you're going to discover a hell of a lot more by going through an elimination diet. And it will actually keep you consistent because it educates you in the process. And this is the problem with IgG food sensitivity tests or any quick fix for that matter. You do a test. It tells you not to eat these things and you don't really understand why. But when you remove these things, you integrate them back in, you track your biofeedback, you see how you're feeling, you connect the dots with the different symptoms and correlations of what you're consuming. Now all of a sudden I have an educational strategy that's going to keep me consistent. Um, So in my opinion, the elimination diet is far more important. It's far more worth it. Um, If you have serious issues, go with the AIP, paleo, uh, it's an autoimmune protocol paleo diet the aip diet is very it's like elimination diet times two i put that in the blog as well and it basically breaks down paleo but then also eliminates things like nightshades and and different herbs and coffee and things that even paleo has but it can still be a problematic issue inside the gut and creating inflammation um so especially because you asked about uh slow body inflammation so basically chronically accumulating inflammation in your joints, in your body, in your gut, wherever, in your brain, where you have brain fog and stuff like that. Um, That's what your main question was. So in my opinion, you should be just going with the elimination elimination diet because the IgG food sensitivities is going to be for more serious things and we just do not have enough evidence to prove that it's actually true. And we have a lot of evidence that shows that it might not be true. So her next question Does creatine cause headaches? I have attempted to use creatine twice now. In the second, third day, I got horrible headaches. I was drinking enough water throughout the day, wondering if it was the brand or if you have heard about this with clients. So uh, I have not heard about this. I have not heard about headaches. I've never experienced headaches myself, and I've never experienced any clients who have headaches. Um, Creatine is a wonder supplement. It has a lot of benefits, not just muscle hypertrophy, saturating the muscle, hydrating the muscle, and allowing you to recover faster so you can get stronger and perform better, therefore build more muscle in the long run, which in hindsight could also probably help you lose fat because it increases your performance. Uh, But it also has cognitive benefits, memory decline benefits for like Alzheimer's and stuff like that. There's a lot of good information coming out on creatine. And it's the most studied supplement and it just keeps coming out with more and more research proving over and over again that it's actually really, really great for you. So that being said, I've never heard anything about causing headaches. My only guess is A, you did buy a cheaper creatine supplement and maybe it is spiked with maltodextrin or sodium or something in there as like a filler. Um, So it's not pure. When buying creatine, one of the most important things to do is look at the ingredient label and try to find – and you should always only buy creatine monohydrate. You should get Crea Pure with the little at or the copyright or trademark sign. The copyright sign signifies that it's actually Crea Pure and Crea Pure is pure creatine. It is the most pure creatine you can possibly buy and many brands are affiliated with the company I believe is in Germany that creates true Crea Pure. So you always want to look for that. Um, I believe Optimum Nutrition is Crea Pure. I believe Gero Formula is Crea Pure. I personally use what's called Muscle Feast funny name but um, they have been ranked on Labdoor and some other places as the top ranked creatine monohydrate supplement. I'll link that in the show notes as well uh, because 
it is a, is the purest form and they've tested it for purity and it showed it and it, it overperformed optimum nutrition everyone it was the number one one so i always recommend uh, muscle feast for creatine for all my clients that's what i personally take it's probably the best one to go with i would try a one like that if you didn't get one that says cre pure i would go that route um, i would also consider drinking more water as you start supplementing with creatine uh, for a couple reasons number one Creatine works alongside with water, sodium, carbohydrate to store in the muscle and actually provide more of a pump, more recovery, so on and so forth. Because of that, you might be retaining a little more water in the muscle. Maybe that means your water consumption, your requirements for daily intake are a little bit higher than normal. Maybe you're performing a little bit harder or recovering a little bit faster, and that requires you to stay more hydrated. So there could be a million different reasons, but if you're drinking two-thirds of a gallon and you start creatine, I would maybe try for a gallon just to give yourself extra so you can kind of uh, take away dehydration from that statistic. Um, and then I would try a better creatine. I've never heard of this being a problem before. Rotating probiotics quarterly. I just heard about the importance of switching your probiotics on a quarterly basis. Have you heard much about this? If so, what brands do you use? So um, I have – heard about rotating uh, and cycling probiotics, uh, not necessarily quarterly um, and not necessarily necessarily rotating brands, but I do believe it's important to take away probiotics and bring them back in. The thing with probiotics is they're great for us, but if we constantly just take a pill of probiotics, it can just be a band-aid, especially if it's just a micro dose of like one or two strands of bacteria. You should find a really diverse probiotic that has multiple strands. Typically what I do is try to get some kind of probiotics in my diet uh, on a weekly basis. It's harder to do, um, especially when you're following kind of like a bro diet like I do. I eat very clean and it's very regiment. Um, so for me, it's a little bit tougher to do that. Uh, but what I will do is I will supplement with a probiotic and I will basically run its course through the bottle. Once it's done, I will wait a month and then I'll bring it back in. So usually it's like two months on, one month off. Um, we want to allow our body to try to do the work on its own, right? Like we can't rely on these things constantly. Um, it's it, it's it's just in my opinion that I think we should be striving to get some of it from real food. We should allow our body to repopulate its own microbiome. We should try to do it on our own before we are constantly supplementing. Um, it's the same thing with fish oil. I think it's important to do with that too. Try to get it through whole food sources. Um, and we got to remember too, like all things aside, like creatine has been proven you don't need to cycle actually, but I still believe there might be some merit in it. I believe there's a merit in cycling everything we do. Uh, we shouldn't stay in a fat loss phase. We sh shouldn't stay in a muscle gain phase. We shouldn't stay in a maintenance phase. We shouldn't stay consuming probiotics every day for months and months and months. We shouldn't consume fish oil or anything for months and months and months. There's only certain ones like a greens powder that's different. It's just food, micronized. But ideally in most of these scenarios, I believe we do create a new sensitivity to things when we remove them. That's why you can't stay in a fat loss phase for too long. That's why you can't stay in a muscle gain phase for too long. You just keep driving calories up. You need to pull back, cut fat, rebuild your insulin sensitivity, rebuild, um, change your program. So don't be following hypertrophy, high rep training all the time. Pull back, do a phase of low rep, heavy work with lower volume, resensitize your muscles to that high volume training stimulus, and then go back at it with your calories as well. So there's different ways to approach everything. And I just just believe this is one of them. Um, 
I had Dr. Zach Bush, I think it was, Dr. Zach Bush on there, the guy who created Restore, which works like a probiotic, but it's not a probiotic. It's more about like real natural minerals and stuff that help you recreate and repopulate. And, and basically, it helps your body rebuild its own gut microbiome um, from what I understood. And I've used it with clients who have serious gut issues, and it helps a lot to remove probiotics, bring Restore in, allow that process to take for four to eight weeks, and then come back to probiotics or the possibility of not really needing any. Um, but I'm not an expert in the gut health um, by any means, we just wrote a blog on probiotics and gut health, two of them back-to-back. -back. I'll link both those in the description. Um, Caroline wrote those, and they're excellent blogs. They give a ton of information on all this stuff that we're talking about right now. Um, what brand do I use? I use Garden of Life. I use a different brand of supplement for pretty much every vitamin or mineral or supplement that I take because Garden of Life doesn't make the best vitamin C, vitamin D, whey protein, pre-workout, blah, blah, blah. Just like Muscle Feast doesn't make the best of each one either. So we got to like kind of strive for this. Everybody should be checking out labdoor.com and, and researching there before you get into supplements. Research examine.com before you get into supplements. See what the dosing should be. See what proprietary blends could be on or throwing you off. Look for right brands on labdoor.com so you don't get sold bullshit like is so common in the uh, supplement industry. So for me personally, I use Garden of Life for this though because it is the top one, uh, one of the top, I think it's in the top three, and it's just easier to access, cheaper, and it's on Amazon. So, um, Garden of Life Ultra Probiotic or something like that is the one I take. Last question from Adriana Hit finishers. I like this question. Hit finishers, H I I T. If you don't have time to do them post lifting sessions, can you do them later in the day? Um, so this all depends on your stress management and your lifestyle environments basically. If I have somebody that comes to me and I have hit finishers in the end of their workout and they are on a diet, they are in a deficit, I actually probably do not want them doing it later on. Couple reasons. Number one, when I have somebody in a diet, I do prioritize nutrient timing. I am going to facilitate more carbohydrates and protein around their training session. And if we're dieting, we probably don't have a ton of calories, especially carbohydrates, to spare. So if we're splitting up our workouts and we're doing a little bit in the morning, a little bit in the day, but I have all my nutrients jammed around that heavier workout because that's the priority, now that high intensity interval session is not going to be as well recovered from because it's separate from the day. Number two reason I don't like this, when I train in the morning, let's say, and I do my lift, I have all my energy, I give it my all, I push super hard, five hours later, I am not super energetic, I'm probably a little bit fatigued, I probably am a little bit tired because I've been working all day, I've been up for more hours, I already had a training session, long story short, that high intensity interval is going to be like a moderate intensity interval, it's not going to be as beneficial and advantageous as it possibly could be because I already went hard during the day. So I'm just more fatigued. I'm tired when I get to the session. And if you're tired and groggy and, and moving slow in a high intensity interval training session, it's not really a high interval training session. Another reason I don't like this, if you're in the gym multiple times per day, that takes you away from your home, from your family, from your lifestyle, from your hobbies. It takes you away from more shit because even if you're doing an hour in the morning and 30 minutes at night or an hour and a half in the morning, it's the same quote-unquote training time. 
But you have to drive to the gym. You have to get ready. You have to get your water. You have to get your shake and blah, 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 blah. It takes more time. I believe that takes you away from the lifestyle things that make us happy. And if we are doing that, our stress is probably going to be higher. And if our stress is higher, we're in parasympathetic mode less. Cortisol goes up. Recovery goes down. We're not going to see as great results. So just some things to think about. Um, last but not least – When we drive into a training session, and when I mean drive, I don't mean like driving your car to the gym. I mean like when we drive up our our nervous system, when we drive up our body, our muscular system, our intensity, our heart rate, we go into a sympathetic mode of our nervous system. This is a good thing. The sympathetic nervous system turns on, adrenaline goes up, cortisol goes up, our body is able to work harder, faster, stronger, more. We're running away from a saber-toothed tiger back in the day, right? This is a good thing. We're going to perform harder. However, being in that sympathetic state does cause more cortisol secretion. It does cause more uh, stress hormones to be produced in the body. And when stress hormones are produced in the body, it is harder to slow down, recover, digest, and basically rejuvenate your system for the next day. So the more times we get into sympathetic mode, the harder it is to be recovering. What else puts us in sympathetic mode is work stress, family stress, lack of sleep, so on and so forth, the diet or deficit that you're in. Now we have all these different stressors and we're driving our nervous system up harder and harder twice a day instead of once. Now we are in a more stress than ever, less parasympathetic, meaning less recovery time. We're probably not going to see as great of results because of that. So I don't like it personally because you're driving your body into sympathetic mode more. I think one session per day is ideal. If you're doing two days, it should be low intensity cardio where you're going on a casual walk. Now I can keep my sympathetic nervous system down. Keep it in parasympathetic. You can recover still. Your training performance day to day is going to be better. So if you don't have enough time to do a high intensity interval finisher, but you still want to get some cardio because you're looking to burn fat, I would split it, but do some walking or do neat or do three 10-minute walks a day, which actually has been proven to be more beneficial for fat loss and health when it comes to um, that versus a 30-minute walk once a day. Stan Everding showed me some studies on that um, after our podcast, and it was really, really informative. So I've dug into that, and that's my preference for clients, for myself. If you can manage to do three 10-minute walks, I think it's very beneficial. Uh, But long story short, I think you're just driving into sympathetic mode too much. There's a reason the high-intensity interval finisher is at the tail end of your workout. It's because that's going to drive muscle protein synthesis up even higher after your workout, which is going to make your meal, your muscle growth, so on and so forth, better. But it's also because I want to pair all the sympathetic mode training together and allow you to get into parasympathetic mode for the rest of the day. That allows us to actually recover. And now I'm going to see better results because I'm recovering from the amount of work I'm actually doing. So can you do it? Yes. But the only way I ever recommend doing this is if you are in a surplus or at least maintenance. But at that point, why are you even doing it? We're not really trying to burn more fat at that point. We're trying to maintain or build muscle. So doing more and more cardio as a two-a-day is probably not going to be that advantageous. I would probably not do that and have more heavy days like lift five, six days a week instead of four and do more volume because your goal is muscle growth. So just some thoughts on that. Um, That's how I would take that approach. Hey, guys. I wanted to take a brief moment to remind you about the Boom Boom Elite, our membership site. This is literally the perfect place for you. The reason I know this is because you're listening to this podcast. And anybody who listens to this podcast is a go-getter and an action taker. You are a person who is seeking information and education to better your body, better your performance, and finally transform your physique. I know this because people listening to this podcast really just seek results. And the one way to get better results is better training programs, but not only intelligently designed programs that actually build in progressions and avoid injuries along the way, but a place that's actually going to teach you how those programs are built. 
See, a lot of coaches and clients alike have insecurities about what they're putting on the piece of paper. Whether you're programming for yourself or you're programming for your clients, you probably have an insecurity or a lack of confidence in the programs you are creating. You probably question yourself. Are these programs actually going to work? Am I going to get injured along the way? When a plateau happens because it's bound to happen, what do I do? How do I adjust? How do I move through this plateau and finally start seeing results again? See, the Boom Boom Elite is not only a place to give you the programs that avoid these things and actually give you results, have built-in progressions, and make sure that you're not getting injured along the way, but it's a place that's going to educate you on how those things are actually built into the programs. So now, you have longevity in your results. You can actually adhere to them because you know what the hell is going on behind the scenes, and you can start creating your own programs that actually work and you have the confidence to know that they will work. So next time you put whatever you put on the piece of paper, you and your clients are confident and feel comfortable and actually believe in the system. Not to mention they're actually going to get results, which is the reason why we do this in the first place. So because you're listening to this podcast and because I know you're perfect for this, I wanted to take a second to just remind you about the membership site because this is the place that I spend every single day communicating with the environment, communicating with the community about training, about nutrition, about supplementation, about all the things that go into side of coaching. So if you want access to the Boom Boom Elite, click the link in the description below or go to boomboomperformance.com slash elite and sign up today. And without any further ado, let's get back onto this podcast. All right. So this next question is from Rihanna, Rhiannon Healy. Your opinion on the systematic review by, I'm going to butcher this name, Kadagiana, F.A. and Cater regarding adrenal fatigue. So I'll put this in the show notes if anybody is interested. It's on PubMed. Um, I'm looking at the study right now. Basically, what happened with this study is they went through 3,470 different articles, 58 studies uh, were filled, the criteria, blah, blah, blah. So they went through a lot of different research articles. Um, they listed out the, the limitations um, in the debates, the disputes with the results postponing these. Um, and the conclusion was this system, systematic review proves that there is no substantial st- substantiation that adrenal fatigue is an actual medical condition. Therefore, adrenal fatigue is still a myth. Um, the reality is, is so basically my opinion on whether or not adrenal fatigue is a myth. I mean, at the end of the day, these people are doing true lab work. They're, they're doctors, they're researchers. They are going to have a stronger opinion than me or any other coach or anybody who claims to be a adrenal fatigue expert. There's a reason adrenal fatigue is not actually a word or a medical condition anymore, and it has been changed to HPA axis dysfunction. It's the same reason why metabolic damage is not a good term to use. Rather, metabolic adaptation is. Metabolic adaptation implies that there might be a dysfunction in the hormonal system, the endocrine system, or that you have a dysfunctional metabolism. Your metabolism has adapted to a lower set point. We have proven, not really through studies because it'll be years and years and years before we have a true competitor or lean individual going through a reverse diet study. It's just, it's just too hard to bring somebody in and take them through that process. Say, hey, we're going to take this study. You're probably going to gain weight, so on and so forth, and tracking those measures, um, especially because – Everybody responds to reverse diets so differently. We can't take a group of 100 people and take them through the exact same reverse diet study, which makes – or process. Um, Week-to-week adjustments are going to be different. 
right? Responses to different caloric increases are going to be different. Some people can increase 2% versus 5% versus 20% um, and see one pound versus two pound versus 10 pounds. Like it's totally different in every scenario. Um, and that's why it's metabolic adaptation. It's not metabolic damage. Damage implies that it's unfixable. It's untreatable. We can't repair it. Adaptation or dysfunction implies that we can heal this metabolism. We can fix this process. We can create more function once again. And I think that's the same thing with the HPA axis dysfunction. Um, adrenal fatigue implies more so that your body is under a state of damage, I believe. And I think that they created this HPA axis dysfunction for a couple of reasons. Number one, it is a dysfunction and we can create function once again. It just takes a lot longer than most people love to believe and it takes a lot more lifestyle intervention and stress management and just changes inside the lifestyle and the stress that you have um, in order to actually facilitate change um, and then also the process of the different systems in our body, the different hormonal systems, the different organs, the different things that are going on all in our body, the, the process of, of one thing to the next inside of our body, it is explained better in the, in the process of HPA axis dysfunction. I don't believe adrenal fatigue is just a suitable name. Um, and like they said, they, and I didn't read the whole study, the study breaks down reasons why they believe adrenal fatigue is not a suitable term. I think that the conclusion was worded improperly. That's all I will say. It said that adrenal fatigue is still quote unquote a myth. The reality is, is most people who talk about adrenal fatigue, they understand it as the same process as HPA axis dysfunction. So when somebody says adrenal fatigue, I don't really bat an eye because I know what they're talking about. To say that it's a myth, I would believe is wrong because something is dysfunctional in that process. We just can't call it adrenal fatigue. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't believe that this study gives a lot of advice on how to fix the process. So even though uh, it does say this is a myth and I think that can be controversial and create debate, I would, I would take it with a grain of salt. Um, I would believe their opinion because they are researchers in the lab studying this stuff more so than anybody else. So their opinion is probably more entitled and it's probably a little bit more informative than mine would be or somebody else's. Uh, but at the end of the day, again, it doesn't give solutions, right? I create content based on solutions. I want to know who I'm talking to. I want to understand the problem that you are facing and I want to provide a result for you and give you action steps. You can leave this blog, this podcast, this newsletter, this Instagram post, this video with so you can apply and see results. This study doesn't do that and a lot of studies don't. There is no application that leads to results and I think that's the end. Of, I mean, at the end of the day, that's how I feel about it for the most part. Um, Martin Foster, this is a great question. This actually brings me back to my glory days of just getting into all this shit. <clears throat> if you have a big meal planned later in the day, let's say it's Thanksgiving, big family dinner, date night, etc., will having a hard workout beforehand cause your body to metabolize the meal faster? I remember having specific workouts on Saturdays because Saturday was my cheat day. Bad idea to do a cheat day, by the way, guys. I did a diet where it was like um, – and I know it's funny because I have buddies in the industry that have been in the industry for a long time too and they've done the same thing where Monday through Friday, you just crush the deficit. You're, you're doing some intermittent fasting. You're doing things that are going to help you um, 
diet, right? Lose weight. And then Saturday is cheat day. You literally just eat as much as you can. You go hog wild. We had a bakery two doors down from the gym. Um, and what we would do is we would go there after our, our Saturday session. So we'd come in, train fasted or just like with a protein shake or something. And we would do like strongman workouts. We would do super high glycolytic based training. So lots of sled, like rep ladders, finish with carries and just exhausting shit. And then we would go there and get like the biggest cinnamon rolls, bigger than your head. We would get cookies the size of your kneecap, like just like the biggest things ever and like just smash stuff. And then you'd usually go to like Cheesecake Factory for lunch or dinner and just smash a massive plate too. Uh, then you wake up the next day five pounds heavier, feeling bloated as hell with a bunch of gut stress, brain fog, and lazy for the day. You say fuck it. You eat whatever else for the rest of Sunday because you feel like shit and then Monday you get back on your diet and it was just like rinse and repeat and you basically go nowhere. You get lean throughout the week and you get fat on the weekend. Not a good process but what I will say is um, there is quite possibly some merit to having a big workout before a meal. Um, I believe it's advantageous for most people because number one, why not get a big workout? You are going to burn more calories. Um, So if you purposely do a little bit extra because you know something is coming, you will earn some some calories. You will burn a little bit more calories um, and that may be good. I think for some people, it's just creating a bad relationship with food, which is why I don't like having free meals. I prefer refeed days um, and high calorie days so we can have some boundaries. And I think if you purposely start adding sets and sets and sets and you just drive yourself into the floor just to earn some more food, I think you're creating a cyclical negative relationship with food and I think that's a bad thing. Every once in a while, um, like on Christmas, I will do a special workout for Christmas because I know I'm going to go hog wild and have fun but that's one day out of the year and on top of that, it's like kind of cool to have like a Christmas workout, right? We do like a big ladder and I start with like 30 reps, then go 28, then 26, then 24, you go all the way down to like 10 and the purpose behind that is to drive up lactic acid metabolite accumulation and insulin sensitivity because the higher rep you go, the more glycolytic it is. In hindsight, you're probably burning a little bit more glucose and glycogen. And usually when I go for Christmas, I'm eating baked goods and high carb foods. So possibly my insulin sensitivity is going to be a little bit better. My muscles are going to be pumped um, and I'm probably going to take in glucose at a faster rate. And this might lead to more beneficial results from that meal. So there is some uh, merit to that. It's just like a glucose disposal agent, right? This is a glorified supplement, but but the process is let's drive insulin sensitivity high. Let's shuttle the, the glucose, the carbohydrates to the muscle cell a little bit easier. Um, the same exact process happens from training really hard, especially when we go super high rep. So there is some merit to the process. There's no studies to really prove this because nobody does like a study where we do like 20 rep sets followed by a cheat meal versus 10 rep sets followed by a cheat meal and see which one goes uh, in the cell better, especially because everybody's insulin sensitivity is so varied and individual. We can't really assume um, these kind of results on a study. So um, there is merit to it. Um, and I also believe there's a mental aspect to it as well, right? If I wake up on a Saturday, I sleep in, I, I have breakfast, and then we go out for the day, and then I eat a big cheat meal and stuff, I tend to feel a little bit more bloated. Um, I tend to feel a little bit more mentally negatively impacted from it, if I'm being completely honest. And I think that's just mainly because I didn't quote unquote earn it. I didn't feel like I started my day with a healthy habit. So when I wake up, I slam a protein shake, I get a good workout in, I sweat. Um, you always feel tighter and less bloated after a workout. You're, you're 
moving things in your digestion and that's been proven too like walking and moving and working out helps your digestion so all these things combined along with just the placebo effect really of just having a happier and more positive mindset I think is a beneficial thing um, that leads you to maybe being more moderate on the cheat meal or just feeling better about the food you ate right so I, I do think there is some merit to it um, the whole like from the science perspective and metabolizing the meal faster it is a possibility because you do drive insulin sensitivity as you do as you train. I think the scale of that is varied and kind of unknown. Are we going to metabolize it faster from a general strength training workout or a high intensity workout or cardio versus weights or 20 plus rep sets versus like 10 to 12 reps, right? So it, it kind of just depends, but um, I think there's merit to it as long as it doesn't create a bad relationship with food. James Ward, how do you approach clients who use exercise to mitigate their anxiety? When they are running into the ground and suggesting to back off doesn't work, where do you go next? This one's really tough actually. Um, I think that number one, there was more to this question and you are referring to a friend or family I believe. In that scenario, I'm almost never going to suggest you be the person to try to help them out. The reality is when a family or a friend or a spouse or a coworker or anybody who is in a social relationship with you tries to give you suggestions on dealing with anxiety, health, fat loss, slowing down, things like that, it's more than likely going to lead to no. <laughs> it's probably going to lead to the answer no. It's probably going to lead to a fight. It's probably going to lead to them kind of just brushing off their shoulders or letting it pass by. And it might actually lead to them doing less of what they need to do. Um, in your case, I would either A, s- suggest a coach, sublimit- subl- how do you say that fucking word? Sublimitably? Basically, uh, maybe talk about your coach, right? If you don't have a coach, maybe you get a coach. Maybe you show them the process you're going through. Maybe you have those kind of conversations. Maybe you suggest somebody getting guidance. Maybe you admit, hey, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but I care about you, and I think you'd probably benefit from having a coach. Because then in my situation as a coach, the person is going to respect me a little bit more. Um, They're going to take my advice a little bit more to heart. Um, It's just the reality. It's the same thing with like your wife giving you advice versus your mentor, right? You should take the advice from your wife, but a lot of times you're stubborn and you ignore it and you take the advice from your mentor even if it is the same or causes the same result. And then you just feel like a dummy. It's just – it's a weird thing inside of our minds. We're human. It's what we do. Um, And maybe it's ego. Who knows? But the point is is you should probably recommend a coach. And then in my situation, I'm probably going to advise them that we don't stop training. We switch up our type of training. So I have a lot of clients who want to lose fat and they come to me training – Uh, CrossFit six days a week. And more often than not, I will slowly, slowly, slowly educate them on the cortisol response, the stress response, sympathetic versus parasympathetic nervous system, how CrossFit is more of a sport, how CrossFit does call for more calories and for losing fat, we need to be in a deficit. um, And it can be difficult to do so. So I will educate them and then slowly transition them from doing six days a week of uh, training in CrossFit to six days a week training period. And that might look like three days of bodybuilding, three days of CrossFit, three days of bodybuilding, 
or sorry, three days CrossFit, two days bodybuilding, one day slow intense cardio, one day rest, something along those lines, right? Um, and as I do this and their body starts to recover better, they're still handling their stress through the weights. They're still handling their stress through uh, exercise, which I totally understand because I do the same thing. Um, but now they're getting better results and they can handle the outputs that they're giving their body. Um, and that's the big thing here, right? We can't give everybody an answer. We can't tell people to stop training. Same process with a reverse diet. Technically, you should probably lower your exercise output, cardio, and training. But for a lot of my clients, I go straight for the nutrition and lifestyle factors while letting them do their thing on their training. Because if I try to increase calories, tell them to sleep more, and take away training so they can recover, they're going to fire me and then nobody can help them. I want to empower them and allow their performance to improve in the gym so they get more excited about the gym and they buy into my system of eating more food, sleeping more, and getting better results. So I think it's a tough avenue you're going down, but I think I would refer out, man. Hire a coach for them or tell them to or you do it and, and lead by example. Leslie Gordon, one of my clients, shout out to Leslie. Tools to combat the 100% perfect or fuck it mentality with dieting and training. So we were having a conversation. Um, she's absolutely killing it. Um, we've increased her calories since we started uh, and she's lost weight every single week and it's been 14 weeks and she's just literally – and this is so cool. Like I think so many people are in such a rush and there's this whole fucking thing about 12-week programs right now. Even with individualized coaches and people talk about individuality and they do these 12-week programs and people expect that they're just done at 12 weeks. And it drives me crazy because your results should not be dictated by a timeline. Your results should be dictated by the result itself, right? So if we can just keep going – and see steady progress week after week after week after week. Why do we have to stop? Why does it matter if we're on week 13, 14, 15, 16? It doesn't matter. We're getting to your result and we're doing it the right way. If we have a timeline, unless you're doing a photo shoot, you have a wedding, you're going on vacation, you want to be lean for, um, you're doing a bikini stage thing, you have an athletic performance, I get it. But if you do not, and this is for lifestyle and you just want to be leaner for life, you should never tie yourself down to a timeline. I understand it possibly could be a long-term investment and you might have to pay more, but you will maintain your results so much better. And then you don't have to worry about doing this process again, going through another 12-week plan. Because now what we can do is instead of saying, oh, fuck, we only have four weeks left in this 12-week program, even though we're losing half a pound to a pound and a half every week, it's kind of up and down because weight loss is not linear, I can guarantee two pounds a week if we crank more calories out. So we cut more, cut more, cut more, try to get as much done in 12 weeks, and then it's over, and we're like, oh, we didn't get to the result, but we got close. Now you're stuck, 1,100 calories, you're suffering, right? In those situations, I would much rather do what Leslie's been doing, and I'm using her as an example because... We were on week 14 and she hasn't batted an eye at any timeline. She's just being consistent as hell with the training and nutrition that I'm providing her. And every single week we're losing weight. Some weeks it's a half a pound. Some weeks it's a pound. Sometimes it's more than a pound. But it's always trending down. And what's going to happen is by the time we're at week 20, 24, whatever it may be, we are going to be at her result and we're not going to be eating bird food. She's going to feel good in the process. And because we took that slow process, if we decide to go into a reverse diet afterwards and actually bring calories up anyway, her body's going to respond a hell of a lot better because it's been adjusting to these new body weights for a longer period of time. If I cut 30 pounds and then I'm stuck, I, I've done it in such a short period of time. My body hasn't had time to adjust and create new settling points for my body fat and body weight and metabolism. So it's really, really important to just buy into the process, buy into consistency, trust the process, embrace the process, lose weight slowly and just do it for a long period of time. You'll keep it off for way longer. Health is an investment, not an expense. 
super, super important for people to realize that and understand it and buy into it. But her, her question, tools to combat the 100% perfect or fucking mentality with diet and training. I, did, I told her I don't have an answer for you because everybody's different. I believe there's certain practices that we can implement and it's just simple reminders. Like for me and for most people, I think the simple reminder of just remembering that it's all one big estimation anyway. So if you're off by two grams of fat, you could be perfectly on for all we know. We cannot determine that one tablespoon of peanut butter is exactly eight grams of fat every single time, right? It's about eight grams of fat, but every jar of peanut butter is going to have different density, different amount of oil, so on and so forth. Nobody's packs perfect, and every fucking tablespoon you grab is going to be slightly different. So it might not be the exact same. It might be seven or seven and a half or nine or whatever it may be. And at the end of the day, you're always going to be off a little bit even if you track perfectly. Now, that's not an excuse to uh, widely estimate every day just because, hey, who cares? It doesn't matter. We can just be quote-unquote close. It's all an estimation because the closer we can get, the more likely we are on point and precise. But the point of this is simple. If you can remember this, that every chicken breast is not actually 26 grams of protein per four ounces – Because who knows how much fat or muscle that chicken actually had, which sounds weird, but it's the reality. If we know that, we can stress less when we are not exactly on point. So when we're not exactly on point, we can just say, hey, you know what? It's all just an estimation anyway. I messed up my diet. I'm over by 15 grams of carbs. Big deal. Rob Peter to pay Paul. I'll pull seven and a half grams of carbs out the next two days. Boom. My weekly caloric intake is cool. I'm balanced. I'm still going to get results. That's really what we have to do. And I think the best way to combat this 100% perfect to fuck it mentality is to just remember those little things over time, first and foremost. Secondly, look at this like a lifestyle. I just got done talking about doing this for way longer than a 12-week program or a 12-week diet or anything like that. Focus on the long term. Where are you going to be in six months, eight months, 10 months, 12 months? Focus on that. Focus on building the house with brick by brick by brick and just knowing that the harder you lay that foundation in, the longer it's going to last. So there's no point in rushing. Look at the long term. Oh, shit, I fucked up on my diet. I went way over on fats. But I had a great dinner with the family, had a couple glasses of wine. It was fun. Cool. I learned my lesson. I should probably plan better, have a lighter breakfast and lunch with protein and veggies, not worry about carbs and fats, just stay in my caloric budget, and I'll have way more room to play with at night. Even if I don't track the wine and steak and butter and baked potato or whatever you had, I know I have more calories to play with, so it's not going to be that big of a deal. Now I feel way less stress and anxiety about it. So that's my advice. It's those little things done repeatedly that make big results in the mindset. Last question. Gus is the shih tzu. Well done. Typically, how long does someone reverse diet before being able to lose weight? It's been two years of continuously gaining weight despite all my efforts. Is there a way out of this? So normally I would say two years is probably more than enough. Two years is a long time. But she did fill me in on the rest of her story. She is working with a coach and the coach is uh, advising this. Um, And I would probably trust the coach. Uh, she, she explained that she had been in a very low calorie diet, somewhere between 900 to 1100 calories for years. Um, she's been training, she's been lack of sleep, whatever it may be. The lifestyle didn't condone it. So being in a chronic diet 
for four plus years is going to lead to reverse dieting for two plus years. The reality is, is it took you a long time to get into the hole that you're in as far as stress and dietary fatigue, metabolic fatigue that you're in. It's going to take time to get out of it. And we just need to be patient and focus on maintaining um, your weight, maintaining the process. Now, she told me that she has gained quite significant amount of weight um, over the course of that time. I believe it was 50 pounds. In my mind, it, it, I would do a simple calculation. What is your quote-unquote true body weight? So if it's somewhere between there, because our body should actually have a little bit of fat. So maybe you're like, I really want to be 105 pounds because that's like super lean. But let's be honest about it and say 120 pounds is probably your natural healthy weight. I would do 120 times because I don't know all your information. I can't take you through like a Harris-Benedict formula. An easy way to do this is 120 times 12, 14, or 15. 15 being I train hard as hell six days a week. 12 being I train three or four days a week and I have a sedentary job, right? If we can bring you to 12 times your body weight and calories from 120 pounds, so 120 times 12, um, I think that's like 2,400. Maybe I'm wrong. Let me calculate this because I am bad at math. Huh, I'm way off by 1,000 calories. So... And this is where it gets hard because you are small, 120. That's 1,400 calories. So let's say if you're – because I believe you said you were training hard. Let's say uh, 120 times 14 just for safe measure. If you're above 1,700 calories because I was just under and you feel good, like track your biofeedback. Because the reality is you're a small person. Unless you're doing serious, serious CrossFit five, six days a week, you don't need to be eating 2,400 calories. Right? If you're eating 1,700, even though that doesn't seem very high, for somebody – like even for me, I don't need as many calories as most people would think because I sit at my desk and record podcasts and do content and email clients and write programs all day, especially on crutches. But I go on a couple 10-minute walks and I train. That's my activity. It's not super active. If I was a construction worker and I trained once a day, now I should be eating 2,500 to 3,000 calories a day. Right, So um, let's say you're eating 1,700 calories because you're sedentary and you train four to five days a week. That seems about right. 1,700 calories and your sleep is good, your stress is good, your mood is good, your cravings are fine, your performance is fine, you're, you're not overly fatigued, you're not moody. Then I think you're in a good place. You're at maintenance. Stay there for a while. Let your body re-acclimate. Re Let your metabolism heal a little bit and just be patient. Let those feelings settle in for a good 12 weeks of actually feeling good. So maybe it took you a long time to reverse, but then sit in that reverse for 12 to 20 weeks and just sit there in that maintenance and just be happy with the feelings, not the scale, the feelings you are experiencing with the more calories. If you come up to 1,700 calories and you still do not feel that way, then I would push it even further. Maybe you go to 1,800 calories. Just add 100 calories. See how you feel. Maybe you stay at 1,700, but you add two refeed days a week where you're consuming 2,000 calories and you let that settle in and you let that try to heal your body. And if you still do not feel better after weeks and weeks, a couple months at least of just sitting at maintenance and trying to feel better, that's when I would seek out a functional medicine doctor. You mentioned that you saw some doctors in the, me the Instagram message. The problem with most doctors is they are very uh, pharmaceutical, quote unquote, and they're just going to prescribe anxiety and depression medication. They're, they're not going to look at your gut health. They're not going to look at your hormones. And even if they do look at your hormones, they're going to say, oh, your TSH is fine. Go ahead and go on your way. And they don't look into T3, T4, all the different thyroid. They're not going to look at your cortisol, your adrenal, so on and so forth. They don't go into detail. So my advice to people in this scenario where you've been reverse dieting for months and months and months, possibly a year, and you are still not losing weight, number one, 
you reverse diet not to lose weight but to heal yourself. So if you've reverse dieted up and you can honestly say that your sleep is better, your stress is better, your mood is better, your performance is better, your fatigue is better, your biofeedback from the reverse diet is truly better – at that point, I think it's safe to go into a deficit, but I would highly recommend implementing multi-day refeeds or diet breaks along the way to ensure that you don't create more or further metabolic adaptation. Once you can do that, then you're good. If you get to that point, you reverse dieted and you've been at maintenance calories for a long period of time and you still do not feel better, none of your biofeedback has improved, then you would go see a functional medicine doctor. If you've reverse dieted, you've felt better, You've tried every gut protocol. You've done all this stuff. But every time you go into a deficit, you still cannot lose weight. You probably still want to see a functional medicine doctor. There's probably an underlying issue or you are so stubborn and you've built this resiliency in your mind to try to lose weight that you are ignoring the symptoms of stress, lack of sleep, true health. And that happens all the time. It really, really does. And I get that. I'm a hardhead. <laughs> so I, I get it personally. But I think you're in a sticky situation. I can't give you uh, specific advice because I'm not your coach. I'm not talking to you, and I would probably have 80 more questions for you about your lifestyle, about your stresses, about your work, about your training, about your history, so on and so forth. But my recommendation is always reverse diet to feel good. Track your biofeedback. See where you are at. If you can't say that you feel good, chase that feeling. Chase the good feeling and stay there for weeks and weeks and weeks. If you've gotten your calories above maintenance and you still feel like shit and it's been six plus weeks and you don't feel any difference, I believe there's an underlying issue. It's not just calories and you should probably see a functional uh, functional medicine doctor. (laughs) 